One of the best things about being a kid is having a big imagination. One of the worst things, having to sit in class and learn about things that seem like a total waste of time in the moment. Long division, intercontinental geography, I think you catch my drift. In his 1961 novel, The Phantom Tollbooth, Norton Jester addresses the highs and lows of childhood through Milo, who we meet as a bored, apathetic kid who basically can't be bothered to care about, well, anything. Since we're talking about kids' literature here, the natural solution to Milo's apathy is, of course, a magical toll booth that appears in his room. He jumps into his toy car and drives through the toll booth and finds himself transported to the fantastical kingdom of wisdom. Along with Road Trip Buddy's talk, a literal watchdog, and Humbug, a blustery, grouchy insect, Milo explores the many sub-regions of wisdom, which he discovers is full of characters and situations with lessons to teach him about the power of learning, imagination, and passion. Milo meets a real-life spelling bee, conducts an orchestra that makes the sunrise, and is tasked with saving the princesses of rhyme and reason in the mountains of ignorance. And that's really only the beginning. This wild, creative adventure is one of my favorites, and I'm pretty sure we could spend more than a few hours breaking down every last twist and turn. For week two of Manuary, I welcome a fellow book podcaster and bookworm, Curtis. Curtis serves as a captain in the U.S. Army and hosts the He Read, She Read podcast with his wife, Chelsea. You can find He Read, She Read on your listening platform of choice, learn more at hereadsheread.org, and follow along on Instagram at hereadsheread. Check out Curtis's personal Instagram, too, at curtisreads. He Read, She Read is a great show, and if you haven't tuned in yet, I would definitely encourage you to give it a try. Thanks to Curtis for joining us on SSR and for geeking out with me about all things books, wordplay, and learning. Thanks so much also to all of the listeners who have already come on board as supporters of our recently launched Patreon page. Learn more about how you can get in on rewards like free shipping on merchandise, tote bags, bookmarks, bonus episodes, book club chats, newsletters, and input on book selections for the podcast at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Thank you. Don't forget to follow SSR on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. As always, I encourage you to subscribe, leave an iTunes review, and share the pod with your book-loving pals if you're digging it. When you help spread the word about the show, it makes a huge difference. We're off on a road trip with Milo, Tak, and all of their zany friends. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Curtis. Welcome to SSR. Allie, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I am a huge fan of your podcast, you and your wife's show, He Read, She Read. It's one of my favorite book podcasts out there. I'm going to say that right up front. So when I started planning for Manuary, I was like, I have to get Curtis on the show. Now, am I leading off or am I following anybody? You are number two in the lineup. I'll I'll accept it, but it's a little bit disappointing. I know. Number two, but it is still inaugural Manuary, so that's pretty exciting. You are only the second episode in which a man has been featured on the SSR podcast. Well, I'm honored that you had me on, and I'm hopeful that I can provide some good insights. 
And this is a book that requires some good insights. We are talking about The Phantom Tollbooth. I already told you this before we started recording, but this has always been a personal favorite of mine, and I'm curious as to why you chose it. As always, I sent you some options. Most listeners know that that's kind of my method by now, and I'm curious as to why this was the one you wanted to run with. So initially, I wanted to go with the Hardy Boys because I was a big Hardy Boys fan growing up. Um, But I feel like that's kind of been done from a 21st century lens. I listened to your Nancy Drew episode kind of preparing for this one, which like that was the first episode of your podcast that I listened to. And when you were talking about cracking the binding to kind of really get into the book, kind of set off one of my bookworm pet peeves. But I still like I I loved it, uh, just talking about how those books have kind of not really aged well in 21st century, like, way that we operate. Um, So I went with The Phantom Tollbooth because my wife loves it, and I've been told that I've read it before, but I did not remember reading it. And even on this run-through, not a whole lot of stuff clicked and connected. My usual source for those is I talk to my mom because she always remembers books that I've read. And she claims that it was like a fifth or sixth grade Battle of the Books book. Did you ever have those when you were a kid? We had something called the Rediterod. That is, that's better almost. And it was like the teacher had this big bulletin board that was out in like the fourth grade hallway because it wasn't just within my class. It was the whole fourth grade. And every student in the fourth grade had like a construction paper cutout of a husky with their name on it. And then it was like a grid. So along the horizontal axis, if we want to get mathematical, you would like move your husky based on how many books you read. Is that kind of like Battle of the Books? Regenerate is just kind of what came to mind. It's kind of, well, it's more of like a quiz program where like you're on a team of like three or four, you have a set list of books and you have to answer questions about the book. Okay. So that might've been the year that I only memorized titles and authors just because I'm all about getting the points, but it was very much enjoyable. I'm a wordsmith history major. So I loved all the language in the book and I've read a little bit of the commentary where they thought that it was a little bit too highbrow for the target audience back in the sixties, but I didn't see it that way. I thought it was just the right amount of like whimsical and witty dialogue that kids would have understood, but still adults reading it got kicked out of as well. Well, and in doing some research before we talked, I found some articles about how the author Norton Jester received fan mail from the same readers like over a period of years. So it was one kid who would write him when he was nine and, and then he would write him again when he was 14. And he was talking about how like that same reader would pick up on different levels of the wordplay at different ages. So I think that's pretty cool. Like the book ages with you. And I know as an adult, I definitely appreciated this book at a whole different level. I have really vivid memories of reading this. Growing up, we always went and we still go, my family to Ocean City, New Jersey, down the shore for my my Jersey Shore friends out there and I have this very distinct memory of of one time when we actually went like in the middle of the winter for like a spontaneous weekend rather than in the summer when we usually go and I remember my mom driving me down there to meet my dad and it was after school so we got down there late and I remember it was probably like 9 30 which at the time was practically the middle of the night and I had the phantom toll booth (laughs) And I like felt so cool because I was like away in the middle of the winter and I had my own room and usually I had to share with my sister and I cracked the book open and I think I just devoured it that weekend. And that just such like a, it's such a vivid reading memory for me. I I think I reread it again in the last five or six years. A lot of listeners know this, but I actually used to work in book publishing Mm -hmm. and I happened to be working for the publisher of the Phantom Toll Booth over a major anniversary for the book, I think. So a lot of people were talking about it and I think it like 
like inspired me to go back because I knew that it was one that I loved. So we're on your third run through for this podcast. I think so. Yeah. So I can't remember when I read it the second time, but I think there was a second time. Okay. That, that's a cool perspective to have, like being in the book publishing arena and then seeing it on that anniversary side. Yeah. Cause there was a lot of hype. This book obviously is super beloved for context listeners. It was published in 1961. Um, as I said, written by Norton Juster with illustrations by Jules Pfeiffer, Pfeffer, not sure how to pronounce it. Um, it <laughs> sold more than 3 million copies, which is obviously extremely impressive. Um, it got rave reviews when it first came out and it's still majorly successful. In 2012, it ranked number 21 among all-time children's books in a survey published by the School Library Journal. It was just announced that there's going to be a movie about it, which I'm really excited mm. about because as I was reading, I kept thinking to myself, like, why has there not been a movie yet? So I guess that announcement was made in 2017. We can look forward to that in the next few years, hopefully. Sounds exciting. I, w- I want to see talk on the screen, the, the literal watchdog that has a clock on both sides of his body. He's yeah. probably my favorite character. Is he? Well, they're doing like a live action hybrid. So it'll be interesting to see like what they make live action versus what will be CGI animation. That's all the rage these days. So that, that's what that, the that kids makes are into these days. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about the experience of coming back to the book. I know you said you didn't remember much specifically about reading that as a kid, but what was this reading experience like? I don't know if you typically read a lot of kids' books. I I think you've mentioned on your podcast a few times Hardy Boys is one of your favorites, but I don't know how often you dive back into Kidlet at this stage. So what was it like reading The Phantom Tollbooth again, especially those early pages and chapters? Well, I'm big fans of, like, whimsical fantasy and wordplay is a big thing for me, which, you know, check the block on both of those for this one. And I love puns, so, like, I'm a sucker for puns, and there's hundreds of them in this book, so anytime I see that on, like, a TV show or Anything and I just like will elbow my wife that there's a, something funny that's always usually pun related. But the character of Milo like really stuck with me because I feel like in today's day and age, you would just be like, he's either too cool for school or he's really smart and clever, but he just doesn't fit real well in like a typical setting. So it was cool to see him grow and develop. That's a big thing for me is like when I'm reading not just children's stories, but regular books that I enjoy is I need to see character development and growth. I like the comparison of this with Alice in Wonderland, which is out there and pretty well documented, but Alice doesn't really grow. She just kind of goes into Wonderland and messes up a bunch of things and the world is in chaos. And then she goes back home. You feel like Milo actually wanted to help people. And even though he didn't think he was good at math, he kind of still fooled the math magician into doing what he wanted to do. He stormed fortresses to save people that were silent, not by their choosing. So he's got the blocks where he's kind of misunderstood. He's got like a little bit of self-doubt about himself, but he grows as the story goes on. He definitely has like the full hero's journey. And I know your wife is an English teacher and probably teaches that all the time. I've heard the whole hero's journey more times than I would want to count. It's bad when you are such a huge Star Wars fan and then your wife like ruins it for you with all the like, oh, he's just the the typical Joseph Campbell hero's journey with Luke Skywalker. I don't want to hear that. Right. I thought this was special. Thanks for ruining it for me. (laughs) 
do you have a favorite character that you really kind of identify with? I, like you, I mean, I love talk just because I love the concept of this literal watchdog for listeners who haven't had a chance to dive back into the Phantom Troll booth in a while. And I would recommend that you do. Talk is pictured on the cover of the book, and he's mm-hmm. a giant dog with a clock face on him and he ticks like clock so he is a watch dog and there's kind of this really funny first encounter between he and Milo because he kind of comes in hot like he's kind of fierce (laughs) and like barking and when they meet in the doldrums he kind of presents himself as this really tough dog and once they get to know each other a little bit better it becomes clear that he's actually very sweet and Milo like I'm a little confused that's not really how you presented yourself at first and Tak is like well I'm a watchdog so I'm supposed to be fierce and and aggressive and that for me was like such a cute endearing way to introduce him I also love the princess of reason more than the princess of rhyme because I think at the end of the book right princess rhyme doesn't have much to say at the end whereas princess reason delivers some pretty great truth bombs at the end which I definitely want to share at some point before we finish recording like I think she really brings like the whole journey together and a lot of the other characters I mean I think we probably will only get to touch on a few of them because there are just so many great characters I loved a lot of the characters in Dictionopolis Dictionopolis and Dictionopolis yeah I loved a lot of the characters in Dictionopolis because they all just had like such a regard for language and for the written word and oh yeah as somebody who loves to read and loves to write, I just had so many like passages that I highlighted, just things that random characters in Dictionopolis would say because I just loved like their perspective on words. Yeah, that, that was the big part for me. And I'm, if you hear page turning, it's because I'm looking through either notes or the book. But the King's advisors are like my favorite back and forth just because one of them will say one word and then down the line, four other ones will just come up like a thesaurus and say the same word word over and over again just because they have to get their two cents in and they love language that much but like uh, the king was talking about when they're at the big dinner and doing their talent show and he's talking to Milo like do you have any tricks do you do tumbling what's the deal with you and he's just like you're just ordinary my cabinet members can do all sorts of things the duke can make mountains out of molehills the minister splits hairs the count makes hay while the sun shines the earl leaves no stone unturned and my undersecretary hangs by a thread if I had known you're such a wordplay guy then I wouldn't have even given you any other options because this is like clearly perfect for you yeah, it is. It, that's the stuff that got me. Like all of my notes are pretty much either wordplay related or trying to link some of these characters with like modern examples. When the humbug shows up, the, my immediate thought was a Teddy Roosevelt type character where he just begins every sentence with just like this expulsion of air. And he's just like, bosh, nonsense. And I was waiting for a bully every once in a while. But after that, I didn't really like him that much. I didn't understand why he was along for the journey. I felt like there could have been somebody else that would have been a better trio with Milo and Talk. I agree. It kind of seems like he was unnecessary. Occasionally he had like a funny remark and sometimes I think he maybe offered some good tension. Like there were a few times where he pushed back a little bit on Milo or gave Milo something else to think about or was just like obstinate in a way that was a little bit entertaining. But I think it didn't need to be the humbug. Like the humbug probably could have stayed in Dictionopolis and it wouldn't have changed the book too much for me at least. That part I could have done without 
like maybe two or three of the King's advisors just so that I could get more of their wordplay. But I th- that was maybe some growth for the humbug too, because he started off where he just didn't want to offend anybody and agreed with everybody. But then as the story went on, he challenged Milo more and then was able to, like you said, like provide a little bit more insight. But overall, I could have done without him. He wasn't really that much to the plot for me. I do think that every character, especially if you were to read this over and over and over again, which I'm sure some people have, I think every character has a lesson to teach kids. And I think Norton Jester must have been pretty intentional about all of this. I read somewhere that he was a big rewriter on this book. Like he rewrote and rewrote and rewrote it many times. So I'm wondering if with each revision, he inserted a little bit more meaning with each character. And I think maybe it's helpful for kids to see a character that has this transition from being very agreeable and kind of always wanting to make everybody around him happy to like learning to speak his own mind. Cause I think that's not a character kids read very often. Like no. I think most kids are raised to think and often rightfully so it's your best bet to like make people happy and to be agreeable most of the time. But it's interesting, I think, for children to experience a character who does that to a fault. Yeah, I agree that the author does a good job of inserting lessons for kids where they wouldn't really expect it. And it's a lot of times in language back and forth with characters. But overall, I think it's really talking about the importance of learning and imagination. And I'm a big advocate for lifelong learning. I'm a history major, so I read all the time. And it was cool to see uh, like some of the seeds of that where he's trying to just tell kids and teach them lessons. So, so like later on at the end of the book, the two brothers that lead Dictionopolis and Digitopolis both talk to Milo and talk about like before he went off on the journey, they were like, we have to tell you something, but then they hold it back until he comes back. And then they tell him after he's done these amazing things that they were like, we were going to tell you it was impossible. We were going to limit you and your thinking like you wouldn't, shouldn't be able to do this. And Milo's stunned. He says, why would you let me go on this journey if it was impossible? And then one of them comes back and says, like, many things are possible if you don't know they're impossible. So that's a cool lesson to throw in and teach a kid that people are going to try to hold you back and tell you you can't do things. But if you don't know you can't, you can This is actually just occurring to me now. I hadn't thought about it before, but as we're talking, I'm thinking maybe like maybe each of those individual kings, the king of Digitopolis, who is so passionate about numbers and math, and then the king of Dictionopolis, who thinks that the answer to everything is in language and reading, maybe individually to either one of them, a journey like that would have been impossible. And it's only when somebody like Milo, who was like brave enough to embrace both cultures and like learn about the value of both sides, maybe only somebody like him could actually have achieved the journey. That's a major light bulb moment and well analyzed. I don't know how I just did that. That's that's actually really impressive. Well done. That kind of came out of nowhere, but I'm I'm glad it happened. I'm not upset about it. That should be a mic drop at the end of this podcast. (laughs) I'm going to drop my mic and then maybe we can raise money to buy me a new one because this is a nice (laughs) mic. Do you have like a pun or a piece of language that is your favorite? Oh, there were so many. I loved the whole idea of eating your words. So yeah, in Dictionopolis, they go to a feast and they're all like presented with words to eat. I think generally one of my favorite things about this book is the way that Norton Jester has like turned all of these concepts into objects. Yes. The words can be tasted and the colors can be played like music and sounds can be locked away 
because they're items that can sort of be like seized by a person and hidden away from use. I loved anything to do with that. And I think the idea of eating your words is a really good example. What was your favorite? Um, it might be when he meets the 0.58 child where yeah. he's just part of an average family. That was good. So like he comes across this kid when he's leaving Digitopolis and the kid is only the illustration is really good where it's only five eighths of a, or 0.58 of a child. And he says he fluctuates in size with the average size of an American family with 2.58 or 2.42 kids. I, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, he's like, um, I used to be like 0.42 of a kid. And, so like I've grown. Now, how every family only has like 1.3 cars and he's the only one qualified to drive 0.3 of a car. So he gets to drive everywhere all the time. Yeah, that was pretty brilliant too. I liked that one. There were just so many great little tricks in this book and I I did have trouble keeping track of them all and I was like I want to remember all of them so we can talk about them on the podcast my other one was uh, Alex Bings who's the kid that kind of floats up and instead of growing up him and his family grows down Mm -hmm. so he only sees everything from the same perspective like his eye level is always at the same and I reread that section probably three or four times because I'm like, Jester, you fox, you, you're, te- you're like you're teaching kids really something important here. Where, as Milo grows, he's going to see things from different perspectives and different points of view, which is important. And he through this example of Alec, he kind of just says, "Hey, you can't see things from the same point of view for your whole life. Otherwise, you're not going to learn anything new." And you know, especially in a culture where we are, where everybody's so fixated on what they believe and don't really want to change how they see things. That resonated with me a lot, where you need to see things from different perspectives and grow as you change over time. Perspective was a huge theme in this book, in addition to like curiosity and creativity and learning. I loved, and I think this happened shortly after the Alec Bing's encounter when Tak and Milo decide that they need help like finding their way to the next destination and they're told that they should go see the giant and when they meet the giant he (laughs) seems to be sort of like an average man and the giant is like oh I'm the shortest giant go ask the midget which is a word that we're really not supposed to use anymore I will say he should be saying go ask the little person Um, and he instructs them to go around to like the other side of the same house and the character is like oh, I'm the tallest midget in the world because he looks exactly like the other character who calls himself the giant. They're then instructed to go see the fat man. The fat man looks the exact same. He says, I'm the thinnest fat man in the world. And no shock, he says, you should go see the thin man. The thin man, again, looks exactly the same as the other three dudes. And he says, I'm the fattest thin man. And so it's all the same person. And it's just like all about the way that you kind of play with the words. And it's all in your perspective. Like you can still be a fat man be the thinnest of the fat men, mm-hmm. I guess. I, I thought that was funny because Milo calls him out on it and he's like, bro, don't ruin this good thing I have going. I can do the job of four people and nobody has is any of the wiser. Yeah, and I have this cool house with four different entrances and I can be whoever I want on any given day. <laughs> that dude's living the life. He's having a good time. Yeah, he can be whoever he wants to be. One of the wordplays that was mentioned in a lot of the articles and reviews I was reading about the book was The Island of Conclusions, <laughs> Which is really clever. The idea is that like Milo and Talk and I guess the humbug, because the humbug is kind of always around. They're driving down the yep. road and all of a sudden they're like leaping in the air and they find themselves on this island. And the man they meet there who is called Canby explains to them that you can jump to conclusions really easily. And 
once again, Norton Jester does this really creative thing of like personifying conclusions as an island that can be jumped to. And I, I liked it. I think it definitely wasn't my favorite in the way that it seemed to be the favorite of a lot of the reviewers and stuff that I came across. But if anything, I actually would have liked to see it expanded upon because I think it's kind of a cool idea. And it really was a very short part of the book. Yeah. Did you like the doldrums? More? I think I did like the doldrums more because I think kids can relate to the doldrums really well. And I think the timing of the doldrums is really interesting in that it was so soon after Milo started this journey. And it was very easy for him to kind of like fall back into his old ways of hanging out with the Lotharians. And I thought it was really clever that the reason that he ended up in the doldrums was because he just like wasn't paying attention, which was kind of Milo's problem from the beginning, right? Like he's just apathetic and isn't engaged with anything. And that's how somebody ends up in the doldrums, whether it's like a physical place or a mental state of mind. So I liked the the setup of that. I thought that was interesting. And I liked that we got a little bit more information about it than we did conclusions. I'm in the same boat. And mainly because when they leave the doldrums is when talk shows up. Yeah. And he's just like you talked about where he's just this crotchety dog that is really impatient and just can't stand that Milo's wasting his time in the doldrums. And he says, like, really impatiently with him, he's like, since you got here by not thinking, it seems reasonable that in order to get out, you must start thinking. And I feel like that's the real kickstart for the whole story is when Milo learns that he needs to start using his brain, start to think, use his imagination, is when he goes off on this great adventure. Yeah, and I think kids throughout history, I mean, kids all the way starting in 1961, all the way until now, can relate to where Milo was coming from. So I pulled out one quote from the beginning of the book before he starts this journey, and he says, it seems to me that almost anything is a waste of time. I can't see the point in learning to solve useless problems or subtracting turnips from turnips or knowing where Ethiopia is or how to spell February. And then there's this whole other passage where he's talking about how when he's at school, he'd rather be at home, and when he's at home, he'd rather be at school, and when he's playing inside, he'd rather be playing outside, and when he's outside, he'd rather be inside, and so on and so forth. So this idea that the grass is always greener, he's not really that interested in anything, he doesn't see the point in learning and I think that manifests in all kinds of different ways for kids across history like now I guess the argument is that there's kids that like won't stop looking at their phones and can't be bothered to actually engage with the world around them because they're too busy on Instagram and like Fortnite or whatever it is that kids do when they're not hanging out with humans and whatever whatever the kids are on whatever the kids are doing I continue to age myself in this episode Um, (laughs) and in the 60s like maybe it was kids who were just apathetic about school but I do think to some degree every kid can relate to this I mean I loved to learn and I was a total teacher's pet I would probably just like call myself a nerd because I was obsessed with being at school but I didn't really care to know where Ethiopia was. I think there's an element of this that all kids can appreciate. I was definitely a kid who, for a long time, didn't understand why I needed to know math because I loved books, I loved to write, I loved to read. And so I think any kid can relate to this like attitude that Milo has going into the journey. That's the cool part about where the parallels between Dictionopolis and Digitopolis because it will play to kids who are either left-brained or right-brained, where they either are word-based or numbers make sense to them, weirdos that like math. I'm I'm, I'm with you, where that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. But it plays to both sides of that. And I still think that if a kid like Milo, from today's perspective, you'd probably just throw him on some ADHD medication and be like, he's just not paying attention because he's lazy. But really, he just needed to learn how 
to use his brain and how to think and how to create worlds for himself to keep himself entertained, which is the cool part. Cause I don't know if you're the same way, but I spend a lot of time in my own head. Mm -hmm. So it pays to be able to entertain yourself. So that's a good lesson to teach kids is like, Hey, you're, you're stuck with the brain you got. You might as well use it and be, find ways to entertain yourself. Well, and of course, spoiler alert, we find out at the end of the book that in the way of so many other great children's authors, Norton Jester has been playing with our usual timeline for this whole plot in that what feels to Milo has been weeks and weeks and months and months of adventure in all of these lands and kingdoms has only been a matter of like an hour that he's been occupying himself in his own bedroom in his own mind but he's been on an adventure that feels like it's taken like a year of his life and I think that's the brilliant thing about it is that like it's showing kids that like with a little creativity and being able to step outside yourself and and sort of your objections to things and maybe your apathy about your normal life you could really keep yourself busy in a really cool way for a long time. Yeah, that was something I really enjoyed. Did you notice the fourth wall break? Tell me. So in chapter two, like right when he goes through the toll booth and he's going along the highway, he's like, what a strange thing to have happen, he thought. And then in parentheses, it says, just as you must be thinking right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It was so quick. Yeah. I was looking through and seeing if it would happen again, and it's just that one fourth wall break, which was a, a cool device that I like that Jester used. It's interesting that he didn't do, like, one more random one at the very end, sort of as, like, yeah. a framing yeah. device of, like, here's a little wink-wink to the reader at the beginning, and then another at the end to show that this whole, like, a journey has taken place in sort of a fixed period. Yeah, I was expecting that because I had made a note of, like, this was a fourth wall break and kind of waiting, for, leaving space for a second one, and it just never came, so I was a little disappointed. Something that I thought was interesting about Milo while we're talking about Milo is that I kept looking throughout the book for, like, a specific mention of his age, and when I was researching for this recording, I found that the author had originally made him eight or nine and that was explicit in the book that he was eight or nine years old maybe in various rewrites it was eight and in others it was nine and ultimately he decided to take it out I'm not sure if he decided to do that or if it was at the suggestion of his editor but they decided to remove his age because they didn't want older readers to think that they were like too cool or too mature to like appreciate the journey that Milo was on. And I thought that was kind of interesting because they could have just made him older in the way that I think most middle grade writers do now. Like most middle grade books are written about 12 and 13 year olds, that there's an mm -hmm. aspirational element. It's interesting that instead they just decided to make him ageless. Yeah, I, I like that. It was an interesting perspective where he could be anywhere in this gap, but that means he's just speaking to a larger audience. Um, did you say how old you were when you first read it? I was probably like eight or nine, maybe 10. I think I was in like fifth grade. That's the gap where I think it fits is for like middle school earlier on the front end, like nine, 10 years old. Is that kind of how you feel about it? Or where do you, what do you think the target audience is? I think the beauty of him not being assigned a specific age is that it really is timeless. And, and this is like super insider publishing stuff, but there's this a very short list in the publishing world of books that are like actually coded as all ages because mm -hmm. in inputting information about books as they're being published sort of like the IT teams at every publisher has to code them with like a specific age and there's only a few books at each publishing house that actually have no age and I'm trying to think of specific ones 
this might be one of them. I mean, it's not top secret. I'm not revealing anything that like is going to get me killed, but this is just sort of like, <laughs> t- like a technical thing that I learned on the job is that there are a few books that are like officially known as timeless and meant for all ages. And I think this book does a really good job of establishing that feeling because depending on when you're reading it, you would assign a different age to it. Even now as an adult, it's not like I was like, oh, he's a grown up. But I, in my head, I thought he was probably 10 or 11. But if I was reading it when I was eight or nine, I probably was like, oh, he's eight years old and we're on this journey together. I don't know. I think there's something to be learned at every age. And I think there's so much of this that probably went over my head when I read it. So as much as it is meant for a younger audience, I can't imagine what of this I actually absorbed when I was a kid. Me neither, which is interesting because younger kids still find things that they like, obviously enough to come back to it and why it has the staying power it does. But I feel like there's just so much that you don't get just because a lot of it is just the wordplay. Like that's just going to go over a lot of people's heads, but it still has enough where a kid is going to enjoy it. I think I liked the fantasy and the whimsy of it as a kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like you were always a fantasy reader. I growing up was super into fantasy. Huge fantasy nerd. I still am. So we can nerd out about that as well. Well, I need you to give me some good fantasy recommendations. Maybe you can do that at the end when we do recommendations because I kind of want to get back into it and I haven't read a good fantasy book in a long time. I got you. Don't worry about it. Excellent. So I think this probably fit into that genre for me when I was a kid. It felt kind of fairy tale-ish. There were princesses. There were kings. And as a kid, any kind of journey is interesting to read about. I've also had this conversation with a few people on the podcast where it's like, when you're a kid who likes to read, reading is just what you do. And loving books is just kind of what you do. And so you'll pick up any book... I think especially in the 90s when I was growing up, it was like there weren't that many other options. It's not like I was combing like the internet for other things to do. So I just picked up every book and I found a reason to love every book. And I think this was, it fit into my head as like one of these great like fantasy stories, adventure stories that I loved. And I think I appreciated maybe some of the humor. The characters are silly. Um, Like you mentioned, the king's like undersecretaries, I probably thought were just like funny and entertaining, even if I didn't understand all of the synonyms they were using. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I have no idea if I picked up on any of like the deeper meanings here. Yeah, which makes it fun for revisiting it as an adult. And that's one reason that I kind of think you've got a good thing going here where you're looking at these from an adult perspective with a lot of this children's literature because you pick up different things. Like you bring your own experience from another decade or so of being on this planet and then just mentally you're able to absorb more than you would have been when you were a child. I also sort of have an appreciation for parents who then get to read these books with their kids. I don't have kids, Mm -hmm. but I would imagine that someday if and when I do like this would be one that I'd be really excited to read to them because it's like when you go see a great kids movie that has lots of nods to adults, but this is sort of the intellectual mm-hmm. version of that. Just sort of the wink wink, just to be like, hey, adults, we know you're out there reading this to your kids and we're sorry about it, but here's a little n- nugget for you. Yeah, and there's like the humorous nuggets, but also some serious wisdom that I would imagine as a parent, like reading this book with your kid might make you like sit up a little straighter and be like, oh, maybe I should be paying attention to this. I thought I'd read it already, but I had no idea there was this much material in it. Well, and then you need to look at the half-baked ideas like Ugh. the flat earth and <laughs> like how that's such a huge rage today and how it's back in 1960 and people are like, that's just a half-baked idea. Yeah, it's just like all so clever. One of the other things that I loved and I think is definitely a concept that went over my head and was something that I actually had to think about pretty closely. I think I reread this section 
once or twice when I read it recently is the um, expectations versus reality section. Yes, yes. So let me set this up a little bit for listeners because I think it's worth explaining. One of the stops along Milo and Talk and Humbug's journey is this city, this village called Reality. And they're in Reality and they look over and they see this beautiful gleaming city. And they're told by whoever is their guide at that point. Honestly, I lose track. They're told by their guide in reality that like, oh, that's illusions. It's like a beautiful city. And Milo looks around at what he's been told is called reality and there's nothing there. There's no streets, there's no houses. People are walking up and down and into places as if there's like normal architecture and infrastructure around them, but it doesn't exist. This is how it's explained to him. Again, I'm not quite sure who is saying this because there are so many different guides in so many different cities, but here is what was said. Many years ago, on this very spot, there was a beautiful city of fine houses and inviting spaces, and no one who lived here was ever in a hurry. The streets were full of wonderful things to see, and the people would often stop to look at them. Fast forward a bit. No one paid any attention to how things looked, and as they moved faster and faster, everything grew uglier and dirtier, and as everything grew uglier and dirtier, they moved faster and faster, and at last, a very strange thing began to happen. Because nobody cared, the city slowly began to disappear. Fast forward again, they went right on living here just as they'd always done, in the houses they could no longer see and on the streets which had vanished because nobody had noticed a thing. That just speaks to me as an adult where you're like, so much of what we do is I'm going to put my head down and just get this done because it's what we have to do to either you know pay bills or get through life. But you're missing out on so much when you just live like that. Yeah, it's this whole like stop and smell the roses Mm -hmm. idea. I also think it, it speaks to like when we don't take care of things, when we don't take care of our homes, when we don't take care of our cities and we stop caring, they disappear. And that's, you know, we could stretch that even to being a commentary on the environment. Like when you don't appreciate what's around you and you don't take care of it, it might go away without you even noticing. Yeah. That was the cool part. Cause it was like the city itself realized that the beauty and what it had to offer was being taken for granted. So it decided on its own, like, what's the point? That was like really profound and poetic to me and definitely something that gave me more pause as an adult. And I think even more pause as an adult now than it did when I reread it a few years ago. Like I think even in these last few years, I've learned to appreciate that idea a little bit more. And again, that's something that I would have liked to learn more about. I, I definitely could have spent more time in the world of reality versus illusions, seeing what that looked like. But that wasn't an essential part of Milo's journey, which I understand. I feel like uh, he was just rushing to get to the rhyme and reason to get them to their rescued position. Do you want to talk about why reason is your favorite of the two? So reason is my favorite, as I mentioned before, because she just has some like great wisdom at the end. Yep. And I'm going to recite another really long quote. So listeners, sorry about that. But here's what reason has to say at the end to Milo. Milo has sort of apologized because he feels like he's made mistakes in, in rescuing the two of them, and he feels like he slowed down the process, and she assures him that mistakes happen and that that's part of growing up. And then after that, as she's kind of understanding that Milo is resistant or has been resistant in the past to learning and doesn't understand the value of knowledge, she says, I'm going to take a deep breath before I do this one because it's long. You may not see it now, but whatever we learn has a purpose, and whatever we do affects everything and everyone else if even in the tiniest way. Why, when a housefly flaps his wings, a breeze goes round the world. When a speck of dust falls to the ground, the entire planet weighs a little more. And when you stamp your foot, the earth moves slightly off its course. 
Whenever you laugh, gladness spreads like ripples in a pond, and whenever you're sad, no one anywhere can be really happy. And it's much the same thing with knowledge, for whenever you learn something new, the whole world becomes that much richer. And remember also that many places you would like to see are just off the map, and many things you want to know are just out of sight or a little beyond your reach. But someday you'll reach for them all, for what you learned today, for no reason at all, will help you discover all the wonderful secrets of tomorrow. That's just awesome. The cool part about both of these women is that when they both disappeared, wisdom just went into chaos, Mm -hmm. like the whole kingdom as a whole, because they were so essential. And I'm with you that when you think of wisdom, you think more about reason than rhyme. But Mm -hmm. I feel like that's just a convention that has to come in every once in a while. But I think she's just the real MVP of this book. When she comes back, it brings everything back into order. And she's able to explain things in a way that makes sense for Milo and then just bringing the whole chaos that has been happening back together. And I feel like she also brings in a little bit of the Yoda speak because Mm. she says that may be true. But you had the courage to try. And what you can do is often simply a matter of what you will do. As the little Star Wars kid nerd in me, that was like, hey, she sounds like Yoda. <laughs> Princess Reason is the Yoda of the Phantom Tollbooth. You heard it here first, everyone. I, f- I feel like that's Flavortown. Like, that's that, that's that's a hot take that's on this podcast. Should we make shirts? That should definitely be Princess Reason equals Yoda. Done. When I start making merch, that will be, like, the second shirt after the standard SSR podcast t-shirt. And you will get the first one. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Comped merch is always a good perk. Yeah, we love comped merch in the podcast community. (laughs) Um, So we do get to rescue Rhyme and Reason at the end. And I think one of the things that I love the most about their absence, and you referred to this a little bit before, just in terms of like the chaos that's going on in the kingdom of wisdom. I loved that in their absence, things were just so arbitrary. Like there were so many rules. There's this theme of there just being like so many weird regulations and like things were just kind of upside down people were eating when they were full and that was the rule like you could only eat when you were full and not when you were hungry there were all of these like different kinds of senses being withheld in the one village all of the sounds had been captured and nobody could speak or or make any kind of a noise I could go on and on probably with the random like rules and and ordinances that had gone into effect since rhyme and reason had been locked away but i think like that speaks to big picture life like when you remove rhyme and reason things become very random and silly oh yeah like my favorite one was the policeman in mm-hmm. dictionopolis when they first show up and he just walks up to Milo and he's just like where were you on the night of july 27th i don't know and he's like that's my birthday forgot my birthday boys always forget other people's birthdays and he puts it on this like list of crimes that he's going to throw him in jail for and milo's like you can't put me in jail only the jailers do that and he just like swaps pulls out some keys and just like i'm also the jailer and then he says he's going to go to jail for three million years and he takes him to jail and when he meets the witch the witch is like actually he doesn't care if you stay here like the door is unlocked you can leave the cool part as well is she wasn't like a witch in that like cauldron and (laughs) she was like she chose which words would be used which was another cool part she was the witch as in w-h-i-c-h but originally milo thought that he was going to go see like a scary halloween witch yeah i think as soon as they got to dictionopolis was when i was realizing i was going to be along for a fun ride because they just were playing so much wordplay back and forth who was your least favorite character so we talked a little bit about humbug were there other characters that you felt were like unnecessary or like portions of the book that you could have done without i mean this was quite a journey that that were taken on and 
as I mentioned at the beginning, I think for me, whenever I read a book like this for the podcast, it's easy for me to get a little bit lost in the details and to worry that I'm not going to get everything right. And I think a lot of this book was essential and I enjoyed pretty much every moment of it. But I do sometimes wonder with these like very rich fantasy worlds, I'm like, could we maybe have skipped one little portion? Like, was there anything that you feel like just didn't do it for you? I don't know. I feel like the whole section that was dealing with sound didn't really resonate. Ah, uh, I see uh, you did there. Uh-huh, king of the puns over here. Uh, nailed it. That was perfect. But, like, the whole point where there's the symphony and the guy's asleep and has to, like, music isn't like a sound, but it is like a sunrise or a sunset, and it is more of a fantastical... People are playing instruments and the sun is coming up. And Milo, like, doesn't wake up the conductor and mistakenly, like, fast-forwards time for, like, a full week. I read that section and I'm like this is really unnecessary. Like, this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Can we just get on to the next thing? And there wasn't a lesson to be learned. A lot of the side characters I'm fine with because they taught either Milo a lesson or had some type of a message to the reader. I didn't really get a lot of out of that whole section with sound. How about you? I think it was just the imagery of it that was cool. I liked the descriptions. I mean, generally the writing and the descriptions in this book are beautiful. And you could just get lost in most of them. And I loved his description of like how each instrument would start playing and and one color would come into the sunset and then the next instrument would play and it would just kind of build on itself. And I thought that was really beautiful to picture. But I agree that the whole part of where Milo is then asked to take on the conductor's job and conduct the sunset, like that was kind of unnecessary. Although... I was thinking at the time as I was reading that that was like one of the first times that Milo was actually given a responsibility. Ooh, good point. And he was like excited to take it on. There weren't, I don't think, that many things before that happened in the book where Milo was like, yes, I will step in and do this. I can handle it. And it was definitely like the first kind of authority figure that gave him a specific task and was like, can you handle this for me? That's a good point. And then it kind of factors in down the line where Reason is telling him that even though he made mistakes along the way, like he did with the fast-forwarding time, that's all part of the journey. It's not not everything's going to be perfect as it goes on. You're going to make mistakes. Yeah, and it gave him some element of confidence. He screwed it up for sure, but I think like just being given the opportunity to try, and it was such like a visual thing and such like a tangible, such a tangible demonstration of what he was able to do. That I'm sure for a kid who like doesn't seem to have been stimulated very much at all, that must have felt good and maybe gave him a little boost going into all the other challenges he had to face. Those are good points. I feel like I'm getting slapped down by the teacher for my... <laughs> Do you have a section or a character that like didn't really agree with you? Um, I mean, honestly, I felt like the demons at the end were kind of yeah, silly. Weird. I have a list of the names of them somewhere because they are kind of interesting. Uh, would you count the word snatcher? Yeah, the word snatcher. There's a terrible trivium, the gelatinous giant. Like, as they're inches away from finding rhyme and reason they're they're met with all of these like kind of random demons and we don't learn much about them we just kind of like see them whizzing by or maybe get like a few words from them we're told about these demons from so early on in the book and you're expecting it to be this big deal that there are demons and I appreciate that the author uses wordplay again to like assign personalities to maybe like bad personality habits or like bad qualities of humans but it just didn't seem necessary. They didn't Did actually put up that much of a fight for Milo. Yeah. Did it seem to you like they resolved those things too quickly? Yeah, it was like, oh, there they go. And, oh, we're just going to, like, go past them. Like, I honestly don't even remember how Milo had to 
battle the few down that he did have to battle down because it seemed like such a quick thing. It was more that they just ran away from the mass of everybody. Well, and then all of a sudden they like get up to the castle and all of a sudden Milo just pops up with, well, time flies. And then they fly on talk down. That part just came out of nowhere for me. And even though I love the fact that talk can also fly, it just seemed like it was a really contrived device where we're just going to resolve this super quickly to get to the resolution at the end. Yeah, that's like honestly even lamer than I thought it was. Right, because there wasn't like this epic confrontation or anything. Like all these demons were chasing them and they just kind of ran away. There wasn't any epic sort of fight. They just avoided the whole confrontation. I feel like that was just not necessary. I think Milo had enough to like deal with internally. Like he was fighting his own demons and like... yeah. I think the book would have been enough. I think there would have been enough conflict in the book. Just, I guess it's that whole like man versus himself conflict that you learn about in high school. It was enough. Like we didn't need to hear about the demons. But again, like maybe to a kid, those demons are necessary to create a last obstacle for Milo to actually be victorious. I don't know. I mean, if I take myself back to when I was nine or 10, maybe that would have appealed to me differently. Well, it's part of like the princess is in the castle and you have like these last obstacles that you have to save and build tension. So that part makes sense because if you're a kid and you're like, oh, they just go up to the tower and find them and go away. Anybody could have done that. That has to be some sort of tension that makes it palpable. Yeah. It's like the fairy tale tropes too, that, I think kids like understand and it's an easy reference for them. This is a super vague question and like very, I don't know if there's an answer to it, but I was thinking about it myself. So I'm wondering what you think. The toll booth itself as an object appears mysteriously in Milo's room. And then he comes back from his journey. He goes to school one day and he is all excited to go home from school because he wants to go on another trip through the phantom toll booth. He comes home to find that it's been taken away. And in in its place, there's a note that's basically like, you don't need this anymore. There are other kids that need to be able to go on a journey like this. And there are other ways for you to get to where you need to go. And I was wondering, like, do we think it was one of those characters that we met in the kingdom of wisdom that's responsible? Like, who do we think is pulling the strings here? I'd say it's a non-described string puller, somebody that personifies, let's say, imagination. So like that big of a concept and just realizes that there's kids that need his assistance or it's this being's assistance. I don't think it's anybody from the world that he goes to, namely because it's already so chaotic. Maybe the only one that would qualify would be reason, Mm -hmm. but it goes to say like, if she could send a toll booth to Milo, what's she still doing stuck in the tower? If she can do that sort of stuff, she can get herself out of that tower. Or maybe she didn't want to and wanted Milo to come save her. That's true. To me, it seems like it's a non-described third party that we never meet that kind of is just overwatching all of these kids and deciding that they need some help in using their brains. I was wondering if maybe, and this is a character that we don't ever actually meet, so kind of along the same lines of what you're saying, but we hear about the two kings' father, so the king of Digit- the king of Digitopolis and the king of Dictionopolis, who also go. is the adoptive father of Rhyme and Reason. The witch tells Milo about him and sharing the whole like family history of the kingdom. And I was wondering, like, if anybody's sort of overseeing all of this, it could be mm-hmm. him because we never actually meet him or really know what happened to him. Yeah, if they were going to pull somebody from the actual story, that would make the most sense. 
but then why would the signature kind of just be blurred out? Like, do you feel like that was mm. a nod to anything or was it kind of just, this is why it's a mystery? I think actually that's what made me think it might be meant to be a specific person just because I was like, hmm, I wonder who it could be. Like who would blur out their name or is there like this wink wink from the author that there's a name under there? I don't know. I might've just been thinking too much into it, but it was kind of fun to think about. No, it, it, it makes sense. Like if it's going to be somebody from the story, it would make sense that it's like this older character that is kind of overlooking his children bickering and inserting wisdom where needed and kind of guiding the story to a good conclusion. Even though it's like debatable whether there's actually a good conclusion, because as Milo's leaving, the kings are starting to argue again about whether numbers or letters are more important. So the whole cycle is going to start over again. Yeah. Milo's conclusion is a happy one, though. I'll read one more super long passage. I really could have read a ton of really long passages. This book was so beautifully written, but... Please indulge me in one more, listeners, and Curtis. This kind of sums up he's gone through this whole journey, and he's no longer apathetic and no longer resistant to learning. And yet, even as he thought of all these things, he noticed somehow that the sky was a lovely shade of blue and that one cloud had the shape of a sailing ship. The tips of the trees held pale young buds, and the leaves were a rich, deep green. Outside the window, there was so much to see and hear and touch, walks to take, hills to climb, caterpillars to watch as they strolled through the garden. There were voices to hear and conversations to listen to and wonder and the special smell of each day. And in the very room in which he sat, there were books that could take you anywhere and things to invent and make and build and break and all the puzzle and excitement of everything he didn't know. Music to play, songs to sing, and worlds to imagine and then someday make real. His thoughts darted eagerly about as everything looked new and worth trying. Well, I would like to make another trip, but I really don't know when I'll have the time. There's just so much to do right here. Now there's a kid who learned to be happy where he is. Yeah, I love that. I mainly enjoy the there were books that could take you anywhere because that just perfectly describes us as bookworms and nerds. Like we use these books to take us to really fantastical places. And I like that as a representation. It's cool. Yeah, Michael Chapin wrote, he's the author of like The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay and a bunch of other really popular books. He wrote in the New York Review of Books an essay about how important the Phantom Tollbooth had been to him as a kid. And he was writing about how he had wanted to be a doctor and then he read the Phantom Tollbooth. And while it didn't necessarily make him realize he wanted to be a writer, it did give him a crush on the English language, which I thought mm-hmm. was like a really perfect way to sum it up. Oh, yeah reinvigorated my love of the English language. Well, I'm so glad to hear it. And did coming back to it also reinvigorate your love for this book? Or has it... Okay, I kind of knew the answer to that question, but I have to ask it. It's going up there with the Harry Potter books as one that I'll be happy to read aloud to my future kids. Oh, wow. All right. Well, I feel like this was a successful revisiting experience then. I would agree with that as well. And I think it had the same effect for you, right? I think so. I definitely appreciated it more than I did even a few years ago. And it reminded me of why I loved it so much as a kid. I remember thinking as a kid and like telling people this was one of my favorite books, but I couldn't really remember why. And Mm -hmm. it's nice to be reminded of that, but also to get a new appreciation for it. Well, it was a pleasure going on the journey with you. On the journey through the Phantom Tollbooth. (laughs) Now it's time for you to give me your fantasy recommendations. As always, I am wondering if you have any books that you're reading now or books that you've read recently that you would want to share with the SSR listeners. Well, with a special request like that, I can't turn it down. I'm finishing up some nonfiction for nonfiction November, but when it hits December 1st, the first thing I'm going to pick up 
is the fifth season by N.K. Jemison. I've kind of made a commitment over the last year to read more perspectives, so more women, more people of color, and this book fits both of those. Um, N.K. Jemison has won three consecutive Hugo Awards, which are the kind of sci-fi fantasy for best novel for this trilogy that kind of deals with a future where... So it's a single supercontinent, and there's like a catastrophic climate change, Mm. um, which is kind of what the fifth season talks about. And it's just how different people who are trying to control energy and different things are kind of vying for power in this world where the climate is deteriorating at a rapid rate. I had a couple of her books when I was deployed to Afghanistan and read them and they were pretty good. And these are supposedly the the best sci-fi trilogy that came out in the last couple of years. So I'll be picking those up on December 1st as soon as I can. And what's the best book you've read during New Reads November? Because I'm always trying to integrate more nonfiction into my reading diet because I'm definitely a fiction girl. So I'm a army officer and a history major, so nonfiction is kind of my bread and butter. I just finished a kind of analysis of Joint Special Operations Command, so it's called Relentless Strike by Sean Naylor. And he's a um, reporter for Military Times and Army Times, and that's another kind of thing that I've been focused on is reading some more books by journalists because they're very good about citing their sources and being careful with what they write as far as facts go. So that was a good one for me, a good probably 700, 800 pages, which for me is a, you know, a Tuesday. A so, dream, a dreamy exactly. Tuesday. Yeah. Um, so that's what I was really liking for nonfiction. Um, if you have listeners that are big into either military reads or nonfiction, hit us up. I'd be more than happy to give you some more recommendations. Awesome. Well, I think our listeners should hit you guys up anyway. He Read, She Read, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, is one of my favorite book podcasts out there. I'll include a link to it in the show notes for this episode, as well as links to all of the books we mentioned and the Phantom Toll Booth, because I think Curtis and I can agree that this is worth a reread or a first time read if you've never if you've never stumbled upon it. I actually found that there were a lot of people that commented um, on Instagram that they've never read this one before. So run, don't walk. This is a great one to read really over a weekend. It's a quick one. How long did you say you took to read it? Well, if I'm being honest, I had to do a bit of cramming for this recording because I was not good about getting ahead on my reading over Thanksgiving. So I Um, read it in like a day. (laughs) I had about 80 pages to read an hour before we started recording because I'm in the same boat. That just means it was really on the tip of our tongue for talking about it. Right. I think it took me maybe in totality like three and a half hours and that was with like taking breaks to walk the dog and do all that good stuff. So you can read this quickly and you should. It's a great one. And it was so fun talking with you about it, Curtis. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Have a great night. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. 
If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.